So tell me, how do you comfort your kids? Do you pick them up the minute they fall over, cuddle them and help them out? Or do you allow them to get up by themselves and take care of themselves? Or are you in between? You go over, just observe, see the true situation before rushing in and comforting them. How can we build kids' resilience after bumps, scrapes and other minor injuries? What is the best emotional sensitivity to use when our kids hurt themselves? Now let's look at the thinking and feeling decision-making preferences of the MBTI and how they affect the way we use our rational thinking when someone is hurt or upset. Remember, don't mistake the feeling preference for emotional intelligence and the thinking for cognitive intelligence because we can all think and we can all feel. So take a moment to ask yourself which of the following descriptions you think are more natural, effortless and comfortable for you. If you're a rational thinking type, your thoughts are why. You find basic truth and principles need to be applied to any situation that you're looking at. You like to analyse pros and cons. Consistency and logic are very important in your decision making. Now unfortunately, you also like telling the truth. You think it's more important than being tactful, and that doesn't always go down well. And sometimes, you don't value the people part of the situation. You can be seen as too task-orientated, uncaring or indifferent. Hmm, how does that sit with you? Now let's look at feeling types. If you're a rational feeling type, your thoughts are who? You believe the best decisions are made up by weighing people's values and ensuring that the best outcome is for everyone in the situation. You're warm, caring and love harmony. You think with your heart and you make decisions that way. You believe that being tactful is much better than the cold hard truth. However, you miss seeing or communicating the hard truth of situations and sometimes others see you as too idealistic, mushy and indirect. Looking at those two different preference types, which one feels the best fit for you? Now remember, you can use both, but usually one will be your most preferred. Now these two type preferences can have different ways of handling a situation. For example, in a schoolyard where a child's been knocked over accidentally in the playground and you're the teacher on duty. If you're a thinking type teacher, your first thoughts are why and your initial reaction might be to survey the situation first because seriously, that kid might just get up and run off and play afterwards. If this doesn't happen, you might go over and ask the child what happened to them, where did it hurt, you might question that pain level, is it a 3 out of 10, a 5, and get a gauge before you console them and comfort them verbally. If the wound needs a band-aid, you might say, hey, listen, it looks okay to me, but if you want a band-aid, go to the staff room and go to the sick bay, and you might get him a friend to walk him on the way. My thinking type son is a junior primary teacher. When he's on yard duty, he has to handle a constant demand of child complaints and minor injuries. Now his go-to line is to get his phone out and say, don't worry, I'll call the ambulance. Amazingly, 99% of injuries are instantly resolved with that one sentence. The children immediately feel better. If you're a feeling type, you might rush over, perhaps hold the child or pick them up. You would possibly then talk to them using emotive caring words. How are you darling? Are you okay? Let's have a look at it. Show me where it is. Oh, that must hurt. You might find them a very special friend to help get them to the sick bay to find a band-aid so they don't have to go alone. Feeling types usually react in an empathetic, compassionate way rather than the logic-critiquing way of the thinker. 
I'm Kate Mason, and welcome to Parenting and Personalities. This is the podcast that connects you to the ones you care about the most. The way we rescue and take care of our children can often be different according to our personality types, but our behaviours are also influenced by many other factors, such as our culture, upbringing, schooling, and the way our parents parented us. Today we're talking to Dr. Sarah Warwick. Dr. Warwick completed her physiotherapy training in 2010 in Adelaide. After completing this degree, she undertook clinical work in an acute hospital setting, as well as working in private musculoskeletal practice for three years. She then returned to research where she took up some part-time research assistant work investigating motor imagery performance in people with pain. In 2016, she completed her PhD. More recently in the University of Canberra, Sarah's research involved elite level athletes with a focus on pain and injury. Sarah's broad research interests aims to better understand why pain can persist beyond expected healing timeframes. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, today we're going to talk about pain and we're going to get into how parents can help their children handle pain. But to begin with, I want to understand what got you on this research path into pain and kind of how you started the career, your career in this area. Yeah, well, I started, I guess, with my undergraduate research, um, my undergraduate studies. So I trained as a physiotherapist um, here in Adelaide, which I know is your hometown as well. It is. Um, and... Yeah, I think through the journey of my undergraduate studies, I became really interested in pain. A lot of people present to physios with uh, different pain problems, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and I came to understand that pain is not as simple as we think and that it's actually really complex. So that got me on my research journey to try and understand a little bit more. Um, so over the years, I've I've I guess, touched in different components of pain research. So looking at how we can better treat pain as well as trying to better understand how pain works and why sometimes pain continues to persist despite there being no issues uh, in the tissues really and, and why in, that occurs in some people but not in others. So I guess I've been through this kind of mixed journey through my research career. Uh, and it wasn't until I had kids of my own that I started to think, oh, I don't, you know, how should I be talking to my kids about pain and injury to, so that they grow up and become, I guess, more likely to recover from injuries and, and be more resilient so that they don't become one of those uh, one in five people who have persistent pain. Um, it is very common. Most people will know people who have ongoing pain. Often we won't know that some people have pain because it's one of those hidden, I guess, conditions that you often can't see in people. Um, so, yeah, so I guess having my own kids, I I wanted to try and understand what, what I could be doing. And, and when I looked into the literature in that space, there was really nothing there. It was very much neglected. Uh, so that, I guess, set me on my journey to try and understand what we can do to try and build resilience in kids and how we can talk to them about pain and injury. Fantastic. So tell me, 
with pain and injury, obviously some do some people psychologically feel more pain and some people physically feel more pain. What's the what's the directive around that? Like is the, is there research done around the fact that some people are actually much more sensitive to pain? So like physically. Yeah, I think it's it's really difficult to differentiate physical and I guess emotional pain, which sometimes people might try and make that distinction. I think sometimes emotional pain might be better described in a different term, whether that be grief or sadness um, or a different type of emotion. Um, Because I think the terminology of physical pain attributes that it's related to something physical in the tissues. Whereas our, our current understanding of pain is that it's multifactorial. So there are lots of things that can contribute to whether or not someone feels pain or whether or how intense that experience is for them. So, you know, what's going on in the tissues can often be an indicator and particularly in what we'd call acute pain. So, you know, sustaining um, an injury yesterday or last week or, um, you know, receiving it, you know, having a little cut often often that the, the amount of damage in the tissues or graze might be reflective of that. But in saying that, you know, how many times have you got into the shower and kind of going, oh, I didn't know I had that bruise there. Or, yes. you know, you've been out in the garden and didn't realize that you've had all those scratches from the roses and it wasn't until you got in the shower and they start stinging that you kind of realize that they're there. So there are many instances when you can have tissue damage but you you don't feel pain at that time, and and that can be due to a lot of different factors. Um, but there's some really, I guess, common uh, situations that people can reflect on and and agree on. Mm. So, if you were studying your athletes' pain thresholds, which you were doing, were you studying pain in um, athletes at one time? Yes, I have done. Yeah. So, what was your outcome from that with? Ath- you know, top sports people in pain. Yeah, I think um, just like everyone else, actually, um, mm-hmm. they yep. so persistent pain is just as common in athletes as it is in the general population. Um, sometimes I think there's that thought that uh, athletes can kind of push through pain in a different way, but I think that what that relates to is that perhaps there's different motivations or perhaps that's um, – you know, whether it's a muscle fatigue issue um, rather than than damage. Because I think what we know about pain now is that it's really a marker of how much protection the body thinks that it needs. Um, so it weighs up all the information that might be happening within the context of that person. And if the body deems that protection is warranted, then then we will have that experience of pain. So I think sometimes in athletes, there might be different contextual factors that might contribute to someone being able to, I guess, what you say, sort of push through the pain. Um, but they're just like everyone else in that regard. When when I, I have, uh, you know, say I have two children and one of them gets more upset, okay, they're the, the child that falls over and, and cries at every graze and, and I have another child that falls over and doesn't. Uh, is still hurt, 
so look, I talk about personalities and I know that certain white people are much louder in their, in their grief when they fall over or when they hurt themselves and others that are the silent sufferers and just put up with that pain level. The amount of pain is still the same, you're saying. Is it the way that they verbalise it? or? Well, so I would say that um, the amount of pain that those two individuals feel could be very, very different. Um, it, it, I guess... Uh, how much pain someone experiences depends not only the context of that situation, but also their previous experiences. They might have had any beliefs that they um, might hold about what that means, contextual factors, uh, sorry, cultural factors mm-hmm. um, yes. that might play into these things as well. Um, and I think, you know, I th- I, a classic example would be if you imagine you're, you know, you've got people over for dinner. Um, and you're, you know, you're carrying a plate of food outside and you stub your toe when you're walking out the door, you know, how much pain you feel in that instance, it may not be that bad. You might kind of walk it off because you've got people around, um, you're just kind of having fun. You've had a few drinks and that's quite enjoyable. But if you consider that you've had a long day at work, it was a bad day, you're carrying all the supermarket shopping in your hands and you walk through the door and you stub your toe, you might say a few words. <laughs> you you know, that experience very will much. be very different even though I yeah. guess yeah. the tissue damage that might have occurred in the foot in that instance is exactly the same. Um, and within the same person, those experiences can be very different, but even in different people who might have had different experiences in the past, you know, perhaps you broke your toe three years ago, you know, that that might play into uh, how much pain you experience in that instance. So I would definitely say that, you know, just because how two people might have the same injury, it does absolutely not mean that those experiences will be the same. So therefore, it's really, really important to validate anybody's pain um, and how they have it and show it even though you might be thinking you're just a wuss. I can't believe that that's happening. Um, yeah, so so that validation obviously is very important. Absolutely, um, absolutely, yeah. Yep. so and in our society to a degree up until recently, but we've always boys, oh, you'll be right, pull yourself up, and girls are very often quite a different thing. Do you find that there are any male-female biases as to how we treat pain? Yeah, absolutely. So gender stereotypes are incredibly prevalent in society. And I think we're trying to make a bit of a change in that. Um, but yeah, so often uh, often girls will show more distress than boys, um, as a gen- generally yes. speaking. Um, and I guess with that increase in distress, often parents or caregivers will be more attentive to that. So they do get a bit more attention than boys. Um, But I guess anecdotally, I also know that often parents or caregivers might be more likely to get boys to brush it off and, you know, be manly and push on through it. Um, But that that sort of attitude isn't necessarily helpful because we know that our little boys and our big boys can be quite emotional um, and sensitive to those things as well. So I think it's really important, as you said, to make sure we always validate someone's experience um, and how much pain they might be feeling.
We hear about happy, cohesive, productive teams, but do they exist or are they a figment of a manager's imagination? Well, yes, they do. And I can help you make this happen. If you're ready to get your team working as one, contact me at thepersonalitycoach.com.au. And it, like, it is really important. I do think as a society we're trying to change those things in every area in life, but it is something that's really quite common. And male to male, very common, I think. You know, man up, you know, you'll be right, son, pull yourself together, all this type of thing around that. And like you say, I think a female, you know, you do tend, and even a female's reactions are often possibly different. I don't know. Have you noticed anything in that in your research? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of a lot of research is probably done more in mothers. Um, I guess often because they traditionally have been the primary caregiver. Um, but there is some research in in looking at dads as well. Um, and yeah, often women can be that a little bit more emotive um, in those circumstances. So if my child falls over and hurts herself or himself. What can I do as a parent to deal with this incident that's going to not cause hysteria, validate their concerns, and hopefully get them up and going again reasonably quickly? Yeah, so there's one thing is that there's not always a a right and wrong answer in this because I think the context is always going to be different. The personalities are always going to be different, but I think it's important as you say, to validate someone's experience. And that doesn't have to be carrying on about it necessarily, but it's just a matter of, you know, getting down to their level and acknowledging that emotion or that experience that they're having. And and that might be it, you know, and then you might try and, I guess, depending on the level of injury, whether it needs some first aid or not. Uh, but Certainly you could, if it didn't need first aid, you could uh, distract them and get them to move on and continue playing with what they're doing. Um, And that's fine as well. But I think it's, yeah, if they are in a lot of distress, certainly providing some reassurance. Um, You can talk to them about what's going on as well. Sometimes what I like to do uh, is if there's a graze or, you know, they've got a bit of blood there, often that can cause a bit of distress. Um, And so we just pop a Band-Aid over it. They often help, you know, depending on the age of the child. Uh, they can help to put it on and then we say, you know, it's all nice and protected. We just, you know, pr- try and prevent an infection. So we're just going to cover it up. Um, you know, we might roll the pants down over the top of the Band-Aid if it's on their knee. And we say, it's all good to go now. Um, you know, and then we might revisit it that evening in the bath if we try and take the Band-Aid off and let it air out overnight. And, you know, then we would look at it again in the morning and say, wow, you know, you've got a scab on your knee. Like, how amazing are you? You've done that healing Mm. overnight while you slept. So I think it's, you know, it can be an opportunity for them to learn about healing, about the immune system uh, and that we're we're actually really good healers and we can can do this healing on our own. That's a great idea. 
um, because, you know, we don't really explain that stuff. Look, Band-Aids are amazing things. They heal a myriad of complexities. And I know that my daughter, actually, I gave her several boxes of Band-Aids for her birthday once because she wanted the ones that had the wiggles on them and she wanted ones that had all different characters on them. And she loved Band-Aids. The only problem with Band-Aids in our household was the taking off process. And if it was, <laughs> it actually hurt more than the cut underneath quite often. Um, so they were actually a bit scared of Band-Aids in the end. But in the bath is a fabulous idea. But it is great for them to see that their body can heal. Because I think seeing a cut or seeing a or something like that can be quite scary for them. So knowing that there is that healing there, we don't often educate our kids around stuff like that. You know, it's it's pretty important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this comes back to this idea that pain is multifactorial and is dependent on the context often. And, you know, I mentioned how sometimes you can be in the shower and not realize that you got a bruise. You know, similarly, I think when you put a Band-Aid over a child's graze, suddenly that comes out of view and the threat and you know the level of protection that the body deems is warranted is suddenly lessened and that can be really alleviating um, mm. for children. Very much so. So another thing that you mentioned in one of your articles was stay calm, you know, like don't panic um, because if you do, then they're likely to panic as well. And sometimes the situation can be quite scary. So you think that's really, really important reflect, reflection for our children? Yeah, well, we know that young children are learning from those around them, particularly parents. Um, you know, so role modelling is really important. And also they feed off our emotions as well. Uh, often, you know, the particularly the young toddlers and babies, you'll notice if something happens to them, if they fall over or if they bump their head, one of the first things they'll do is look at mum and see what mum's reaction is and that will help guide their understanding of, of what needs to occur in that circumstance and what their emotions might be. Uh, so I think we just need to be really mindful that you know if you see a child fall off the end of the slide and you have this you know, really, uh, I guess, strong <laughs> yeah. emotional That's response, right. yep. They see that and often that can be something that will then feed into what they're feeling. Whereas if you try and maintain a relatively neutral um, emotion, uh, then I guess that helps them to potentially think about what it is that they're feeling. And we can also talk to them about that. You know, how does this make you feel? What are you feeling right now? Um, try and explore, help them explore the emotions that come about as a result of these experiences as well. Yeah. yeah, no, that's it is pretty important. I know that when my kids have been really sick, they get asthma and they're, they're a lot older now, Sarah. But, you know, uh, I used to, my husband would panic and I'd boot him out the room and I'd try and stay really calm with them because, you know, when you've got a kitty lying there struggling to breathe, it's really, really stressful. So, yes, you know, but absolutely. I know that with something like asthma, which isn't necessarily an injury, their remaining calm is one of the most important things. So it is, it's, it is a very important thing for us to remember and us to, you know, remember that uh, they are always looking to us and that they do mimic and copy things that we do. And that's not just with pain reactions or anything like that. It's to do with everything in life, believe me. As I get older, my kids are 27 and 29 and I can see all the things that they've mimicked from me and some are good and some are bad. So it is a really great thing to, to remember that. Now, as parents, do we often act 
different? Do we ever act differently, do you feel, when other people are around? Because you know how you were saying contextually, if I stub my toe and I'm in front of guests, I'm not likely to let go of more expletives than I would if I walked in the front door as well, you know, not likely to happen. So do you think that's probably be a, a behavioural thing in a sense that we might behave differently with others around? Yeah, it, it, certainly it changes the context of that situation um, and I think that that's important to recognise. Because mm, I really love that context because I think I've never really, really thought about the context of the situation in that sense and it is plays a huge part in all of that, doesn't it? Where you've come from, what kind of injuries you've had before, where you are at the time be, time is, yeah, is pretty massive. Now, listen, on finishing up, can you give us, just um, just wrap up those tips for building ch- children's resilience after they have, you know, bumps and scrapes and other minor injuries? Just reiterate what you think are the best things they can do for them. Yeah, so I would say one of the big things is make sure we validate children's experiences yeah. um, and provide reassurance if that's, if that's needed for that child in that moment um, and that experience for them. Uh, I haven't so much touched on this one, but I think it's, it's important to consider that these experiences are really good learning and very powerful learning opportunities for young children. And so it's an opportunity to try and educate them about how pain works. So that includes some of this stuff about, you know, there are other things that can contribute to how much pain someone might feel other than what's happening in the tissues. Yeah, great. Um, Use, I guess, also consider that these are opportunities to uh, promote emotional development in children because often these pain or injury experiences can be quite an emotional outlet for children. Um, and, yeah, so you just consider that this can be an opportunity for, to help children explore, explore their emotions. And I think the final thing would be to consider that uh, we can really try and empower children to be active players in their recovery. And I probably haven't touched on this one quite so much either, but I think that there is this uh, tradition uh, in society where we are very dependent on healthcare professionals such as physios, you know, to fix their injuries. So you go to the physio to fix your ankle. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's really important to be mindful of our language in this context because we are the healers ourselves you know, we go to see a doctor or we go to see a physio and they give us the tools so that we can help ourselves. Um, but at the end of the day, we are the ones that are responsible for doing that healing. And I think that is a really powerful message that we can be teaching children as well because they are the healers. Yeah, that's a great message. And that's the truth for anyone listening is that we are the heal- we, we are in charge of ourselves. We're in charge of our own bodies, our own minds what we put in to our bodies and everything. And that's a fabulous message because if they start learning that young in the early years, then hopefully there will be a great deal more resilience in them as they're growing up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've got this really, well, it wasn't a good example at the time, but I think reflecting on it, it's a nice example um, with my my son, which was uh, only a couple of months ago, actually, he had a rock to the back of his head uh, and ended up requiring stitches. Uh, well, not stitches, staples actually. Yes. Um, in the back of the head, and it was 
it was a really interesting experience for me. So we were at the Women's and Children's Hospital and the nurses there were absolutely amazing um, in terms of helping him uh, with his pain control levels um, as well. But there was some really interesting uh, for me to observe some of the wording that occurs in some of these healthcare settings. So, you know, I think that the nurse put in two staples into the back of his head and kind of said, you know, all fixed up, you know, off you go. And I kind of said, oh, actually, what you've done is just, you know, you've, I I didn't say this to her Mm. at the time, but Angus and I talked about it um, afterwards that, well, actually she's, you know, she's put the staples in his head, which have helped to bring the skin together. But actually now it's up to him to go and do the healing. You know, it'll Mm. take a couple of weeks and then we can take the staples out but those staples are there so that so that you can do the healing. So now we need to, you know, make sure you eat good food, have good sleep, so that your body is in the best position to try and do the best healing that it can. And I think that's that's really powerful messaging. Um, it is in that circumstance as well. Yes. No, I agree with that. So. Thank you so much, Sarah, for today. It's been really interesting and listening to all of that and listening to the fact that, you know, we as parents can play a huge part in this and healing is really, really important for everyone and ourselves, even if we listen to ourselves and say we can actually fix ourselves as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's been lovely talking to you. Yes, it's been great. Thanks for the chat. Therefore, as parents and caregivers of children, When they hurt themselves, let's model the behaviours that you want to see from your child because your child is watching. Stay as calm as possible. Validate your child's feelings and experiences and explain to them that their body is an amazing weapon with an ability to heal and teach them what the process of healing looks like. And remember, of everything, pain affects everybody differently. Be kind. I'm Kate Mason, and thank you for listening to Parenting and Personalities. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could leave a rating and a review that would help others learn about this podcast. If you're interested in discovering more about you and your family's personality types, you'll find my newly launched book, Who Is This Monster or Treasure My House, on Booktopia or Amazon. If you have an episode idea, please send a note to thepersonalitycoach at gmail.com. Many thanks to our producers at Stories and Strategies, and we'll see you next time.